Good morning, Olive Branch. It is great to see you guys this morning. And as we're kind of continuing forward before I jump into this, a couple things for you guys. First of all is, uh, I announced this last week, but I really want you guys to know about this. In two weeks, we're launching another series called His Story, and we are really encouraging that everybody in the church be at this series. This is one of those series, honestly, that we've never done anything like it before, and um, it's going to be so foundational to what we're going to be doing over the next few years that you need to be here, you need to be in on the know, you need to be connected, and so that we can be all on the same page and launched off in the same direction. Now, secondly, I'm also wearing this t-shirt this morning for a purpose. This is not just a good Olive Branch t-shirt. We've launched our disabilities ministry this morning. Our sidekicks are starting off, so it's exciting. It's called... Yeah, the, the ministry is called Uniquely His, and so if you have family members or you know of families that um, have avoided coming to church because they have a, a son or daughter or a family member with a disability of some kind and they haven't decided, they, they can't make it to church because of various reasons, we want to give it a shot. We want to be able to say, hey, we, we want to minister and care so that everybody who's made in the image of God can worship our God. Amen. So that's what we're looking at doing. So in the meantime, we are in this series called Upgrade, and we're being challenged by the book of Romans as we're continuing through that book to really look at how the gospel can transform and upgrade our lives. That Once we allow the gospel to have its full work inside of us, when we allow what Jesus Christ did and the work that God is doing in this world to change us, it changes some basic things inside us. We talked about the first week, how it changes our mindset as we surrender ourselves fully. Last week, we dove in and we began to look at the fact that it changes the way we view ourselves and the giftedness that God has brought to us and how we serve each other. And, and this week, it, it's, it's another adjustment that we're going to be looking at. I, I, in my journals, one of the first entries I ever made back in junior high <coughs> was about a, um, a, a, um, a, a PC. It was like, um, I think it was called a PS1 or something like that. I know that's like PlayStation talk today. But back in the day, that was the IBM's first personal computer that they had produced. And I had convinced my dad to buy it and get it. On, get it. And so we had to upgrade the software, the, up, the operating system from like um, some weird thing that IBM had had to a Windows-based system because it was like Windows 5.0. It wasn't even a, an actual Windows yet. It was like a DOS system. And so in order to do that, uh, we had to buy all the discs and stuff. And the reason we did is because I had this game I had bought and it wouldn't run, but on this new version. And so I was all pumped up, all excited about it. It was a game that I could build games with and stuff like that. And so as a young kid, I'm thinking, this is great, a computer game. This is going to be exciting. It was really popular at the junior high I was at at the time. And so we finally load this up and boom, the game works. I'm excited. I'm writing about it in my journal, how I'm pumped I am that all this, this upgrade suddenly made this thing start working. And I think that's what we're seeing as God upgrades us. There are things that begin to start working in our life that maybe didn't work before, that maybe we're starting to move forward in our lives that otherwise we'd never considered. One of those things in our culture that's kind of one of those confusing pieces that that works and doesn't work at times is love. You think about it. We're so confused about love in our culture, aren't we? What is it? How does it work? How do you find love? How do you keep love? Do you just fall in love and then you fell out of love? Is that what goes on here? Is there some system or order of life that you and I can, can, can live out so that love always remains? We, we're starved for love in some cases. We know we're supposed to be loved, but we're afraid to, to give love because we might be spoiling. When is it love? When is it not? Guys, as parents and as, as people who long for love, is it not a confusing world to live in when we talk about love? I don't even need to get into Taylor Swift songs. We've already done that. But there's a confusion about love in our world. Now, 
God, however, isn't confused about love. He is love according to the scriptures. And what he's desired to do in us is to upgrade us so that we can experience and enjoy love and give love away. And so the most important aspects of this upgrade is how we deal with each other and how we deal with the world around us is going to center on this conversation about love. And so let's look at this in the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 12, starting in verse 9. We're continuing on forward in this chapter. And we're going to go roll through um, four verses this morning, tons in this. And we're going to talk about this upgrade that happens in us that brings about love as the center, as the operating system that you and I should be working from, from this point on. This is how Paul says it in the book of Romans, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, This is a very interesting set of verses, but it starts with this whole conversation about love. Let your love be genuine. And 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 most people agree that the rest of this is all about how love is genuine, how it breaks out and moves into life. And so we want to start with this reality that our love has to exist in action, not sentiment. And too many times in our world, we have lots of words about love, but the actions of love are are vastly missing in our culture. We say we love each other, but then we don't do actions of love, and so there's no love that's actually undergirded with action. In fact, the way that Paul is writing it here, he says, guys, let your love be without hypocrisy. That's another way that it could be translated. Let it be unhypocritical kind of love. Now, An unhypocritical kind of love takes us back to Jesus, who was telling certain people that you guys are hypocrites. Now, obviously, a lot of us as Christians have had that thrown at us, right? You you probably, oh, you're such hypocrites because of something we've done or something we've said. And the honest truth is there's a difference between hypocrisy and inconsistency. And I need to kind of point that out as we move forward. Inconsistency is called being a human being and being fallen, okay? We're all going to say things from the pulpit or not all of you, but I'm going to say things from the pulpit. You're going to say things in your life that honestly, you just can't live up to. We know we believe certain things and because of the fall, we're going to have an inconsistency that's going on, but it doesn't mean that we don't long to. It doesn't mean we don't try to, and it doesn't mean that we're, and we can't be perfect on this side of heaven. Hypocrisy, however, is to state something with your mouth with no intent of upholding it. It's to lie with your behavior. It's to say, I love you to your spouse, but never do any actions of service or care. It's to say, I love you to your kids and then treat them like dirt. It's to say, I love you to your neighbor and never lift a finger in any way to reveal that love in an action. And so this really gets back to what in the world is love? How do we define this love? And we've talked about this in, in a past series on, on, what, on what love is and, and getting into a definition of that and looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But right now, let's just take the short version. I want to show you guys that Jesus defines the ultimate love in this way. He says, oh, that's not exactly what I wanted, but we'll move forward. And so he says basically this, that no, man, no love is greater than the love that gives his life for a friend. Greater love is no one than this than that he lays down his life for his friends. 
When you think about that statement that Jesus gives in John 14, is that what we are seeing here is that our love is to be a self-sacrifice. Our love is to be a giving of ourselves when it is good for them, even if it's painful for us. Otherwise, how do you know people aren't just shining you on? So you're a young teenager and, and you're a girl and some guy comes up to you and says, you look amazing. The question that usually goes around in most people's heads, at least I thought, was, and what do you want? You know, that kind of a response. There's always an underlying what's really going on here. You can give flowers, you can give stuff, you can buy presents, you can do these things. But what is the underlying statement? Are, what are, you, are you trying to get something or do you really show love? Love is really revealed when you're willing to toss your kid out of the way and allow the truck to hit you. Love is really revealed when you bring that child home and you stay up until the wee hours of the night and you're woken up multiple times because the child needs food. That's a sacrificial mothering love. Love always sacrifices. Love always finds a way to enter in to help the other. That's why if we're going to move forward in genuine love, I want you guys to start practicing one question in your life. One simple question. You need to write this question down. How can I help you? We think that's the fast food industry's question. It's not. It is the question of love. How can I help you? You come home, guys, from a long, exhausted day, and your wife has been dealing with the kids, or you've had the grandkids over, and life's been crazy, whatever it is, and somebody's tired, you're tired. It is a loving act to walk up and say, I see you've had a tough day. How can I help you? And then expect a response and go do that, that you can actually literally enter in and answer somebody's need by saying, how can I help you, and answering that need. This is a way of showing love. It's a self-sacrificial way of showing love. In fact, God looked at us and said, how can I help you? And he knew how he could help us. He could help us by ridding us of sin, getting us past the day of judgment in which we would be condemned before God. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to help us, to bear our sins on the cross, to give us freedom from sin and a right relationship with God. This is the exact kind of love that Jesus is talking about. This is what happens when you load the gospel into your life and let it have its full work in you. It upgrades you to become a people of love. And that love looks like self-sacrifice. And so what, what are these actions then that we should see? I've got six actions that Paul begins to list from love. And the first one is this, hold to good and hate evil. Notice how Paul continues on looking at verse nine again. Abhor what is evil, he says. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor is a pretty odd word. I remember being, uh, I think it was in high school when I first ran into it. And I'm like, that's a weird word. But abhor literally means to so be so repulsed by it. You, you just, it's just disgusting to you. Sort of like what happens if you're in a home with kids and they're sick and they're throwing up. And you walk in and there it is and the bathroom's a mess and you know you got to clean it up. Anybody been there before? Who abhors that situation? You walk in and you literally, you wretch. You go like, you're like holding it in yourself. That's how our response should be when it comes to evil. When we approach something that is wrong and evil, we we should have a tendency not to be like, oh, that's interesting, which is what most of us do, right? I mean, I've been kind of trained in our culture to be like, oh, look, war on television. War, ooh, war. War should be like, oh, that's horrible. It should make us wretch. It should make us back away. We should abhor it. We should hate it. 
But what we should do with love is, is, it says to cling to it, to hold fast to what is good. That term is also to cleave. It was used by Jesus in, just, in translating the book of Genesis when he said, the man shall leave his, his family and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Literally what's going on here is he's saying, make good a part of you. Take it in. Establish it as part of who you are. Hate the evil, abhor it. Just be like, ah, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. But good, you should take and jest, put into your life. Let it be a part of how it flows in and out of you. Obsess yourself with the good. Well, what's evil and what's good? Our culture is confused about this as well. Defining evil, we think it's so, well, you have to have evil with good because there's this yin-yang balance thing. We've been told that, nope, that's not true. Evil is simply put this way. You take what is good and you twist it for a wrong purpose and you've created evil. You take what God made good, like sex, which was intended in a very real way for a very real purpose, and we twist it to what we want it to be, and you've created evil. You take truth, which is good, and you aim it at somebody to harm them and hurt them so you don't include love, and you've twisted it to be something that is evil. You take love, and you love somebody, but you eliminate all the truth, so you never tell them really what they're like or hold them accountable, and you've taken love, and you twisted it, to an evil. Now we have names for all these different evils that we talk about. One is bullying versus is control and trying to keep people in order. You have all these pieces that we talk about in our culture as evils, but the bottom line is all we've done is taken a good thing and given it a twist and sent it in the direction it never intended to go. And so when we see that, we should back away from it. This is not what we should get engaged in. We don't want to touch it. Instead, we want to know what good is, and good is beneficial. It's always beneficial to others and to the self. And this is important for us to note, because if we don't keep it beneficial to others and to the self, we're going to do things we think is good for other people, but it's not. So we need to be careful. We need to think about what is beneficial to the other. That's the good. So I don't speak harsh words to you. I want to build you up. But I will speak exhortation to you because I believe sometimes that's what lifts us up stronger. Sometimes we've got to challenge ourselves and convict each other of our sins so that we can grow. Other times we just see somebody's broken. We need to lift their spirits, tell them the promises of God, informing them of who they are in Christ, giving them an intelligent understanding of what God is doing in their life. Whatever it is, we want to lift each other up. Who doesn't like being encouraged for real? Nobody likes being, you know, smoke blown up their tail. Nobody likes that. But who doesn't love a good encouragement, a real one that comes from the heart? That's being beneficial to someone. That's building them up, according to the book of Ephesians. That's building them up. And everybody in the world, whether you're Christian or not, can live out this principle that we should be beneficial to other people. We should do what is good to them and to ourselves. How often do we excuse doing evil because, well, I'm not harming anybody else? It's still wrong to harm yourself. And we need to say that today. I can't believe we need to say that today, but we do. In a culture that thinks killing ourselves when we're suffering is a great idea, you're doing a harm to yourself. Oh, it's not a harm, it's good. No, you're taking your own life. That's the ultimate harm you can possibly do. In a world where we run around, we think, ah, we can do drugs and I can get drunk all I want. It doesn't matter. I'm not harming anybody. You're harming yourself. It's an evil. We should abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. And what we're seeing here is that oftentimes we forget, yeah, I'm supposed to do good to myself. 
because I'm made in God's image. And to abuse me who is made in God's image is also to insult God. And so Paul levels this down. He says, guys, you want to do love? You want love to go to the next level? Allow God to transform your lives. So hate what is evil, push back against it, and hold to the good. So here's a simple way to set this into play. Challenge yourself with one thing you're going to practice over the next week. I'm going to encourage three people over the next, week, over the next day. I'm going to find an excuse to write an encouraging letter. I'm going to find an excuse to say something kind. Maybe it's that you find an excuse to literally give something to somebody who is in need. That you're out there and you just go find a need and you want to meet it. And you're going to do that every day over the next week. You're just going to start practicing good. And here's the problem. Our nature, being born, is going to lean towards evil. Got it? Isn't that true? In the silence, our minds have a tendency to twist over to the bad stuff. We want to meditate on the wrong stuff. It's just how we are. And so we're not going to have the ease of figuring out what is good. So you got to practice the good. Literally, give yourself a challenge every week and just do one thing at a time. Maybe it's one time, you know, one thing for a month. But start practicing it, making it part of who you are. And you're going to need to write that down, figure out what that is, and do it on purpose. That's how good is going to get into our lives. And so love begins to take hold and change us, and it becomes action-oriented by also loving each other in the church as family. Notice how he goes on. He says, let love, or love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another as a family would love one another. Well, how in the world do you love a family? You bicker and complain at each other. That's how you love a family, right? That's how we love in our family and make fun of you. And then you're supposed to deal with it. No, the, uh, no, a family in the ancient world, a brotherly love or brotherly affection was a stronger love in their mind than marital affection. There was nothing like the ties of blood. When your brother was doing something, you were right there with him. When your sister was doing something, you were defending her. She was blood. Now, I'm not saying that they had the right concept that marriage is below a brother or sisterly affection. But what he is saying is have the highest kind of care and love for each other that you can. Have the highest form of sacrificial love for each other that you can think of. That's how we're supposed to treat each other within the church. To have this family-like love. You know what? And I get you can't always do that on Sunday mornings. You know, some of us are on the rush out. Some of us are on the rush in. Sometimes we got things we got to get done. Um, but honestly, we should practice treating each other as family, getting to know each other by name. And we all have something in common, Jesus Christ. And we have another thing in common, Olive Branch and the, and the message. We have plenty to talk about. And some of us just need to take that step and engage and, ta- and go with each other out to breakfast or go connect with each other at lunch, whatever it is, but begin to build a brotherly affection because the bottom line is you can't have a real strong family affection if you don't know each other's names, right? That's why I feel so guilty. I'm bad with names. I walk up with you guys. I'm like, I should know your name. And we're like name- wearing name tags at events. I'm like, we all need to start wearing name tags. That'd be awesome. <laughs> but I- that way I wouldn't have to worry about your name is, but anyway, the idea simply is that you got to know each other, but this doesn't necessarily always happen here. It happens in small groups. Small groups is the place where you're known by name. 
Small groups is a place where somebody knows what your problem is and follows up with you week to week. It should be the location that you see ministry happening because you care for each other. That when somebody's in pain, your group launches to help out. We were at a small group event last night. And what was exciting to hear the testimonies from the small groups. That in these small groups, there was somebody um, at the table I was sitting at and, and in their small group, they had kind of started just recently with our last uh, small group campaign. And, and so a couple of the men had gotten into the group and they were kind of like, I'm here because my wife dragged me. You know, that's how they started. And now they love it. And one of the reasons why was one of the men got so sick, he was in the hospital. Their entire small group went and, and went down there constantly to connect with him, to meet him in the hospital, to pray with him. I mean, in essence saying, we are the ones that care about you. We are your family. We're here. Another, fan, another couple that had shared from the front their testimony had started off with a small group that just was basically okay and then dropped down to three of them, just their family members. And over the time, they have one of the largest small groups now after four years. And during one of the periods of their time, as they were ministering to their small group, they wound up having trouble in their life with some family members that were dying. And their small group turned around and bought them the groceries and cared for them in a way that they said, no, we love you. We're here for you. We love with a brotherly affection. We're like family. Guys, that's what you get when you're in a small group. That's why we should be in small groups. You can't exist in a great brotherly affection. Sure, we love you guys. We want to connect with you. We'll talk about what that looks like at the last section. But all of us should experience this brotherly affection, this closeness that happens in the small groups. And I want to challenge you guys. Maybe that's where you begin to go, where you begin to connect where we can have support with our problems. And that's what you should do. If you're in a small group, be sure to get there. I mean, I, I know we're growing in that in my small group. It's kind of like, okay, because our small group like, seems to be the small group of crisis. Don't join my small group unless you want a crisis, okay? So, but it, it's tough to keep up with everybody and how to work things out, but we're learning and we're fighting through that to love each other like family. And that shows love. I have to sacrifice some of my wants to go care for you because you are worth it. Love each other like family. Action number three then that comes rolling in is this idea, um, this is Jesus' command to us, that you uh, love one another as he has loved you. That's obviously how we should love with sacrificial love. So moving forward to this, complete, compete in respecting people. Who's competitive in the room? I bet I'm more competitive than you are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> competitive people, this verse is for you. Check this out, what Paul says. He says, guys, outdo one another in showing honor. Who doesn't want to fight? Who doesn't want to have a competition that's really good? And here it is. He says, you want to outdo yourselves in something? Outdo each other and lift other people up. Outdo each other in showing respect to people and making them worth a million dollars. Outdo each other by looking people in the eye, giving them the good handshake, making them feel like they're all there is. That's what this word honor means. Outdo each other with honor. It's, It's putting people with the right value. It's to look at them and be kind to them and respect them by staring them in the eyes, to see them as the image of God, not as a transaction, not as a person just to say hi to and get them inside. No, they're human beings. It's to be able to walk up to somebody because you know them well enough and brag about your friend or your neighbor or something to another neighbor because you see the good in them. How many of us know our neighbors well enough to be able to brag about the good things you see in them? How many of us are, know, our, know our neighbor's sins before we know the good things? I know that's the problem, right? That guy does this and his dog does this. And, you know, so sometimes we got to stop and go, you know what? I need to know the good. 
And I want to brag about that good. I want to bring that up. I want, to, I want to build people up. I want to outdo each other. And so maybe you need an accountability partner. What you do to your accountability partner is you go, I bet I can encourage more people than you can this week. And have a contest and go for it. He's literally saying outdo each other. Keep trying to honor somebody more. It's really, it's really interesting when it happens because it's powerful when you give somebody honor. The other day I was down at the youth property and um, it was one of those things pulled up and there had been a lady who was sleeping there. It was pretty early in the morning and uh, she, was, she was homeless, obviously. She had laid out some blankets and stuff. She had a little dog and, and so I, I got out of my car and I was gonna approach her and she wasn't hurting anything. She hadn't broken anything. There's no problem there. She, she was just sleeping. And she starts F-bombing me out and get away from me and this and that. Just you obviously had been told plenty of times to go away. And God just kind of worked on my heart right there. Because my first impression probably would have been like, hey, you, you probably should move on. You know, the day's coming or whatever. But it was like, no, this is a human being. I was able to look her in the eye, give her a hug, talk about her dog, ask her her name, find out why she was here, what had been going on. She'd been kicked out of the park and she'd been really wrestling with finding some place to go because the, the gangs had taken over in the morning in her mind or something. I, you know, I didn't judge anything. I just listened. Offered an opportunity to use the bathroom, you know, get herself in order because she's obviously going to leave anyway. But the difference was to just look her in the eye and see that there was somebody's daughter in front of me. So look her in the eye and they realize this is somebody's family member. And this is God's person, image in front of my face. And that's God working on me. But that's what happens when the upgrade comes in. When God begins to roll through us and starts to use us, we see people as people and we're able to honor them even if they're not Christians or whatever they're doing. Honoring people in our workplace, honoring people in our homes, honoring our children when they do well, we should outdo each other in this kind of stuff. That's the competition that love does. It just presses us forward. So there you go. If you're competitive, you got an awesome opportunity to compete. And so next though is action number four. We want to get into this idea of don't wait, but serve the Lord with passion. We, want, we don't want to wait. We want to serve the Lord with passion. Notice how this works out. I think my thing's dead, so we'll just move on. Read here in verse 10 with me. Sorry, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Another simple command, another simple way to install it. Guys, how many of you would say you're zealous? to serve the Lord. And how many of us got out of bed this morning going, I got to go greet people. You know, it's like, I get it. It's exhausting to go hang out with and change some more diapers, to get up and go meet with some kids who, who would rather pick their nose and listen to the Bible. You know, I get how this stuff works. But God says, let's be zealous to do the good. Let's not kick back and wait. Let's engage. Let's push forward. Don't wait but sir, Lord, and this was a great conversation I had with my friend Chris. He's talking about one of, his, um, one of his coaches over the years that he had talked to. And his coach said, look, you know what the thing we need to practice? We need to practice leaning in to the good impulse. Practice leaning into the good impulse. What's the good impulse? We all know what it is. And you're walking by and you see a piece of trash on the floor and you're thinking, I should pick that up. But you're too busy and so you keep moving. The good impulse was to do that good thing, to just even as insignificant as it seems, to go, you know what? 
I'm really having this bad day. I'll pray for you, we say. And then we go on our merry way. And what do we do? We don't pray, right? Instead of saying, I'm going to lean into the good impulse. I'm going to pray for you right now. And right where you're at, you pray for him. Right where you stand, you do the good. You don't wait. You lean into it. That's not to be slothful. That's to get engaged automatically right away to get right into what God's called us to do. Now, we don't sit around waiting for the church to say, hey, can you come serve? We go, you know what? Where can I serve? A person with passion, a person with zeal is ready to use their gifts, ready to go at any moment, ready to dive in, ready to clear stages, move chairs, whatever it is, because we're out to serve the Lord. We're out to do good things for God. We're out to go up to somebody and and, and blow their minds when you ask if you can clear their tray, and they're like, you you don't work here. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to help out. Blow people's minds when we walk around, we, you walk up to somebody like, and you go, you know, you guys are slammed right now. Can, can I grab a towel and wipe down some tables for you? They'd be like, oh, uh, you're trying to get free food or something? It's like, no. Trying to be zealous to do the good. On spot, ready to move. Passionate, Christ following. Our culture says, don't you dare be zealous. Don't you dare be passionate. Because then you're a radical and radicals are bad people. We don't like radicals. Especially if you're radical about your faith. I don't think anybody's going to mind if you're radical about this part of your faith. I don't think people are going to mind that you're all pumped up to go serve people. Now, obviously, there's a lesson here. My daughter is probably the most zealous person to serve people I've ever met in my life. She's up, ready to go in a heartbeat. She's so ready to serve us, she hasn't even asked if we need it. You know, she gets up and starts serving, and we're like, we wake up. She's like, I made breakfast, and I cleaned everything. And it's like, what? And she didn't clean everything, but the breakfast is made. And, and we're going like, we were going to go out to breakfast this morning, but okay. You know, she, and so just a warning caution when you're really zealous to serve, ask, how can I help you? Because oftentimes we can be so zealous to serve, we're doing stuff that people don't find helpful. They find it annoying. That's not a context on my daughter. But the idea is simply that we need to realize, hey, guys, there's an opportunity to say, how can I help you? We should be fast to it, immediate to it, with passion about it. And then we need to move forward into this idea of enduring in trials. Love doesn't give up. Love keeps going. It keeps pressing forward. And often what he says in trials, we begin to break down. We get grumpy, right? When you're in a trial, you begin to judge. Why is everybody else going through nothing and I got this? And trials has a way to grind you down and bring the worst out of you. And Paul's saying, no, let your love be genuine. Even in the hard times, keep enduring. Notice how he talks about this. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So he gives us three things to deal with the trial. First, rejoice in hope. How many of you know you're going to heaven? You're 100% absolutely sure I'm on my way to eternity with God. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you should be, bam, right there. If you are not sure this morning that you are going to heaven, because you're not sure you're good enough or you're not sure you're, you follow Jesus enough. Hear me. You need to trust that Jesus Christ has borne your sin. He's given you everything you need to go to heaven. You need to keep trusting that promise and that promise alone. Because that's what gets you into heaven. It is your trust, your dependence, your leaning on God. And if you do, when you hit a trial, you will have the ability then to continue to trust that this trial will soon be over. Soon? What do you mean by soon? 
Soon, in context of eternity, soon can be a few years. Now, it may be tough, but if you begin to ponder heaven, you begin to ponder the hope that you have, you begin to know what God has for us, you will begin to have a strength in the middle of trials that you never thought you had before. Because you will realize, as I like to do when I'm in a surgery situation, okay, in about nine months, I'm going to forget this. I'm going to have, I've gotten through this, and nine months later, this is going to be over. I'm not even going to remember it anymore. That has been so powerful as a hope. Now I think, you know what? One day I'm going to be walking in eternity where all the trials are over, and never a trial will appear again. Where the struggles of sin and the mess of this world is done, and it's been resurrected and made right, and I will have the presence of God, and I won't want to sin anymore, and I won't want to make a mess anymore. That gets me up when I'm down. That pushes me forward when I'm defeated. And that leads to prayer in the middle of it where you start leaning on God with continual trust. And that's what he says, guys. Keep going by praying. Keep going by walking with him. Be patient in tribulation. Just just keep going. Long suffering and constantly pray. The prayer is important because in trials, it's oftentimes Satan wants you to get away from God. I'm not getting what I want from God. I'm not getting what I need from God. And sometimes God's bringing the trial just to show you that you're asking him for things that you want just so you can have them. He's trying to break you and break me of our addictions to the wrong kind of prayers. And so maybe our prayers change to God, give me the patience to get through this. This is so hard. Show me what you're trying to teach me. Keep me going. And remind me of heaven every day. Maybe that's the prayer we need to have. But in our trials, we need to continue to endure in these ways. And we continue then to love God. And we'll continue to love each other. And so trials continue, though, as we begin to focus on other people, as we help each other in our trouble. Paul continues that concept, and he goes into, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Continue, con- contribute to the needs of the saints. You know, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it states this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We have all that we need to provide help for each other, but we hold, our heart, hold on to it, and we're not providing. We are actually, literally, not loving. We're doing the opposite of love. And so he says, guys, you want your love to be genuine? Give to the saints when they're in need. Help each other out. Here's a practical solution to this. Put $50 aside in your budget for the month and give that away when you hear of a need. Imagine if everybody in the church did that and one person said, I have this need and five people have 50 bucks sitting around that they know they're gonna get rid of at the end of the month because they're there, it's there to help people out. You suddenly have enough to begin to really help people. But if we don't plan for it, and we don't plan to be good and do good, it's not going to begin to roll out. But the second part is, we're emergency givers in our culture. Crisis! And so we go, here's, here's money. See the little kids sick and dying? We're like, give money. No, the, one of the most powerful ways to give in our culture that's not even known is to give preemptively. How am I going to know what the problem is before it happens? Because you meet the needs before they rise. That's what ministry is. That's why God calls us to the tithe. That's why God calls us to giving a percentage of our income so that we meet the need before it hits and before it happens. So that we meet the need in our youth before they have a crisis because they got youth 
youth leaders surrounding them. We meet the needs in marriages before the crisis hits because we're doing a marriage ministry. We need, need these needs in preemptive strikes called ministry. And so this all builds into that giving. The second thing he says, then be hospitable. Guys, that simply means we welcome people who are not like us. And thank you, Olive Branch, for being a place that loves people who come through these doors, for being hospitable. I hope you open your home in the same way. I hope you invite people, your neighbors and non-Christian people into your home so that you can just love them. We are to be hospitable, and that means to serve them in a manner that they feel honored in your presence. And if you're a guest here, we are excited that you're here. And we hope that you feel loved and connected. That's why we do what we do out here, to ensure that you are able to make your best effort to get to know somebody here and feel the love of God. That's what we're doing. And so I I challenge you guys in your love to allow these actions begin to flow. And take this message home. Put it on your refrigerator. Let these challenges sit in front of you. Because here's the bottom line. The reason we're all confused about love in the past is because just like my old operating system wouldn't run my game I wanted to play, I had to upgrade it in order for it to work. God has upgraded our hearts through his gospel so that love becomes the core of who we are. And these things happen because we've accepted what Christ has done and he's changing us. And so don't sit back and go, this is so hard. Get in the presence of God. Let his gospel transform you. Surrender yourself over to him and watch as he begins to bring these actions out of you and let your love be genuine. Do you bow your heads with me? This morning, you may be here and honestly, when I asked that question, are you 100% sure that you're going to be in heaven? You couldn't raise your hand. And maybe it's because you're a doubter. Maybe, I don't know, but I want to challenge you on something. If it's because you think you're not good enough, even if you think you're not good enough at following Jesus, if you're not good enough because you haven't done good enough things in life or you're just not sure what God wants, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for you. He bore our sins, our mess-ups, our mistakes to pave the way that we could have a right relationship with God and be in heaven with God forever. The way you get into heaven and you know you're for sure into heaven is because God has given you his son who takes your sin. That's what keeps you out of heaven. And then he gives you his righteousness. That's what gets you in. It's literally an exchange that God views in heaven. And he gives it to you as a gift. You don't run and earn it. You don't follow Jesus perfectly and get it. You literally trust God's promise. He says, do you trust me this morning? Do you trust that I've promised you to give you what you need to go into heaven? You don't have to work for it or earn it. I've given you this relationship with me. Do you trust me? And maybe for the first time, you need to begin to trust Jesus Christ for what he's given you. The forgiveness of sins and everything that you need called righteousness to be in heaven with God. If that's where you're at, and you need to begin that journey. Or maybe you need to renew that journey because you've been believing the wrong thing for a long time, thinking you've got to be good enough 
You gotta go to church enough. You gotta follow Jesus good enough. You gotta have enough quiet times. Maybe it's time to just trust Jesus and to trust God's promise. If that's you this morning and you know you need to trust God's promise, you've been forgiven of your sins, you got everything you need and that's all there is, I wanna give you a chance to do that right now by putting your trust in God and you're gonna let me know by putting your hand up and you're saying, that's me right now, I'm ready to do that. And I wanna walk you through prayer. Excellent. Some of you guys have heard this prayer before. But now it's time, it's time to just say, it's time to go to God and just say, God, I've been trusting in all these things and I've done these sins and just list those to him. And as you do that, you're gonna do the next move. It's called repentance. You're just, in your mind, you're just gonna turn away from those things and turn to God and you say, tell him that you trust him and him alone to take your sins on Jesus. Tell him that you trust the promise that you're forgiven. Let him know that you trust that he's given you everything that you need to be in a relationship with him and to be in heaven. Invite him into your life to lead you forward with confidence. And ask him to show you how to relate to him. And God, for those in the room who may be making a renewal this morning or those in this room who have given their life for the first time to you, trusting that you've given them everything they need, I ask that you would bless them, that you would give them a confidence and that every day they would continue to walk in that trust and enjoy the relationship with you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.